So I have the pleasure of introducing our guest preacher today, who I've gotten to know a little bit in the last year um, through Duke Divinity School. Kendall Vanderslice, uh, before coming to Durham, was uh, in Boston for a time. She's also a Wheaton alum. We have several Wheaties uh, around Oak Church. And like I learned more, we, like Betty Jean will come up and read in a minute. She, she went there too, so great people. I've never met anyone bad from Wheaton, but I haven't met a lot of people. Uh, Ken- Kendall went from Wheaton, and when she moved to Boston, she did uh, a degree at Boston University in food studies, which isn't the most direct route to studying theology, um, but it's an amazing route, and I think one that will benefit from this morning. And I'm really especially excited um, for her to share today uh, some of what's been on her mind and what uh, the work that God is, has and is equipping her um, as she studied uh, the life of God through food in churches, uh, especially um, a certain styling of church called dinner churches uh, that really focus around the table. And if you're around Oak Church for a while, you realize while not a dinner church, we're certainly a table church uh, that spends a lot of time here and experiences and extends God through fellowship at the table. She has a book coming out next year, which I have no idea how she wrote a book while she was in first year of divinity school, because that's impossible. But the book is titled We Will Feast Aptly, right? Uh, and the subtitles Rethinking Dinner, Worship, and the Community of God. So I'm really excited uh, for Kindle to kick off our fall kind of anniversary month series called This Is Our Story. Uh, we're reorienting as a community coming into our fifth year of ministry in this neighborhood around this grand story of God that arcs from creation to corruption, that God's formation of a community, and then uh, the cross of Christ that then burst forth new creation. Uh, and so uh, Kendall's going to talk about creation today in a way that maybe none of us have necessarily considered before, and I'm excited about that. So I'm going to invite Betty Jean to come up and read our passage from Genesis 2 and then Kendall. These are the generations of the heaven and earth when they were created. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, when no plant of the field was yet in the earth and no herb of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord had not caused it to rain upon the earth and there was no man to till the ground, but a mist went up from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord made to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. And the tree of life was also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of even Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. It is the one which flows through the whole land of Havilah where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. Bedillion and onyx stone are there. 
The name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one which flows around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to um, till it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may freely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Then the Lord said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called them, um, um, and whatever the man called them, every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all cattle and to the birds of the air and to every beast of the field. But for the man, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh, and the rib which the Lord God had taken, and the rib which um, from the man, and made him into a woman, and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, and she shall be called woman because she was taken out of the man. Therefore a man leaves his father and his mother and cleaves to his wife, and they become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is the word of the Lord. I ask you to pray for me as I venture to speak in the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So begins the opening scene of our ancient and holy scripture with God, a great gardener crafting life out of the void. With God, the word speaking life into being. After separating light and dark, Earth and sky, sun and stars, water and dry land, God formed living creatures, beginning with the soil. The Adamah in Hebrew, which is the dry ground that sprung forth trees and plants and seed-bearing fruits, from which God formed cattle and creeping things and wild animals of every kind. God filled the earth and the seas with all kinds of creatures, big and small. And God called all of it good. Then God said, let's craft one more thing, a creature in our image. And so picking up a handful of the lush Adamah, God breathed into it the breath of life. And behold, the Adam, Hebrew for human being, soil animated by the breath of God. Only one aspect of this creation was not deemed good. It was a human being alone. And so God crafted a partner to be the Adam's helper and companion, another human to share in the delight of this magnificent creation. And God called all of it 
very good. The world as God created it to function was lived in beautiful interdependence. The seed-bearing fruit, the animals, and the humans all filled the earth with new life. God told the human beings to do just one thing, to delight in this, to take care of this delightful world, to govern the soil out of which you were made, to be fruitful and to multiply, to rest in the mutual reliance among humans and animals and soil, to spread out over the face of the earth so that they might experience the diversity of the world God made, that they might encounter new climates and topographies, new plants and new animals, that they might develop new agricultural techniques and in turn form varied and delicious cuisines. Draw near to God as you participate in the harmonious symphony of the created world. That's all they were told to do. And this is what we were created for. We were created to delight in God by delighting in God's creation. And the best way that God had for us to do this is through eating. We were designed with two primary needs. First, to need nutrition and energy from food. And second, to find companionship in sharing our life with others. We could have been formed with skin that could convert energy from the sun or with feet that could soak in nutrients from the soil but instead, creation was formed out of this overflowing abundance of God's delight and God's love. And so even our physical needs reflect this joyousness too. Instead of chlorophyll, we got taste buds. We got tongues with thousands of taste buds that work together with our sense of smell. Every bite of food engages all of the senses. Every experience of eating is a combination of sight and smell and taste and texture. And it's also an experience that draws community together. Even if you eat a meal alone, chances are that your food has been touched by farmers or cooks, or at the very least, ants and bees and microbes. When we eat, we take part in the mutuality of all of creation. We commune with our bodies. We commune with one another. We commune with the created world. And ultimately, we commune with our creator as well. Some of you might be cringing inside. You might not feel the goodness or the joy of eating. Maybe you have allergies, and it's a reminder at every single meal that certain foods will bring you pain. Maybe eating feels inconvenient, or maybe you feel like when you eat food with others, you're an inconvenience. Maybe you know the grip of hunger. You know the worry over whether or not you'll get to eat tomorrow, or the next day, or the next. Maybe the very foods that connect you to your family and that connect your family to home were the butt of jokes in elementary school. Maybe you can't look at food without counting up calories and wondering how many miles you'd have to run off to burn it all off. As much as the table unites us to one another and to our creator, it also reminds us that the world right now is not as it's meant to be. Two trees stood together in the garden where the first humans lived, the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. God had only given the humans one thing to do, which was to delight, but God had given them one restriction as well, a restriction on what they could eat. Feast upon the fruits of all of the trees, God said, just stay away from one, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. But as we know, and as you guys will study further next week, 
This temptation proved too great, and so they plucked from that forbidden tree and they ate. They took the vegetation that was intended to sustain and to be sustained by them, and they used it selfishly. The Orthodox priest uh, Alexander Schmemann says that the fruit of that tree was food whose eating was condemned to be communion with itself alone and not with God. It is the image of the world loved for itself, and eating it is the image of life understood as an end in itself. He says that the original sin that took place that day was a ceasing to hunger after God and God alone. It was a ceasing to see every aspect of life as utterly dependent on an interdependent world as a sacrament of communion with God. Immediately their eyes were opened, and so with juice still dripping down her fingers, they looked down at their naked bodies And rather than behold the beauty of her curves or the powerful ability for her belly to bring forth new life, the woman saw the dimples of her thighs and the softness of her middle. The man felt sweat break out upon his brow as the soil sprouted forth thorns and thistles. They felt shame at the nakedness they'd always known as beauty, and they looked to the vegetation around them to cover up. They realized that everything God had created and that God called good could be used for evil as well. In just one quick meal, all the relationships that God had designed as good, relationships with their bodies, relationships with the ground, relationships with one another, and ultimately the relationship with God became relationships that were covered in shame. Their selfish desires disrupted the delicate mutuality that allowed for the flourishing of all creation, And so now, with all of these cycles broken apart, the joy of new life, whether it was out of the ground or out of the woman's body, required sweat and tears and pain. Food and eating mark the brokenness of the creation that God called good and that God so loves. I like to read the gospel as a story of meals. All kinds of meals tell stories. They tell of displacement and migration. They tell of moments of plenty and moments of want. They tell of social hierarchies and family relations. And they memorialize the resilience of people that history is most want to forget. Carolina Hinojosa Cisneros, a Tejana poet and also a good friend of mine, calls meals generational storytelling with an open mouth and a heaping spoon. The stories that meals tell remind us both that food was created to be powerful and good, and also that creation is not what it's meant to be. God chose meals as the storytelling device for this grand cosmic narrative that we're a part of. It was a meal that brought death into the world, but it's a meal that marks the healing of creation too. When we share food with one another, the bread and the wine, we remember that God breathed into the belly of Mary and brought forth a new Adam in Jesus, the word who was present in the beginning, the bread of life who promises that we'll hunger no more, the rabbi who ate with those marginalized by society, who turned water into wine and five loaves and two fishes into a meal for a crowd of thousands. One small meal of forbidden fruit brought death into the world, but, with, but through death, Jesus reclaimed our eating as a sign of new life. As you feast together, he told his followers, remember this bread and this wine. 
Remember my body and my blood, this death that brings the world back to life. We eat today in a world that suffers the ramifications of this fall. We feel this whenever our bellies rumble and we don't know when we'll get to eat. We feel this when we fear every calorie and the effect it might have on our thighs. We feel this when a single misplaced tree nut could send us into anaphylactic shock. We feel this when we prick our fingers on the thorns and the thistles and when our brows drip with sweat. But we still abide in a world that God called very good. We still experience the gift of communion with one another and with our creator as we sit together and eat. We learn to hunger for a world that is loved, not for itself, not as an end in itself, but a world that exists as a sacrament of communion with God. For the past four years, I've been studying churches that worship around the table, that eat together as an act of worship. Some of these communities were started specifically with the purpose of worshiping at the table, and they call themselves dinner churches. But others have long understood feasting to be so central to the life of community um, that they eat together because that's what they know church to be. They don't find it, and they don't see their church as anything odd or new or groundbreaking. It's just what church is. Some of these communities meet in restaurants, others meet in gardens and on farms, some like you all and my church home in Boston, integrate eating into every single Sunday worship. The first time that I attended a dinner church service, I was struck by the conversations that took place around the dinner table. Confession and forgiveness, honesty, humility, strong disagreement that led to fervent conversation that had no resolution aside from the shared cup that they closed out the meal with. Methodist Bishop Larry Goodpastor writes that the many varying opinions about how the sacrament should be used and what exactly it means, um, despite all of these differences, there is a common sense that something holy, something transformational, and something grace-filled happens at the table. As a result, he says, the Eucharist may indeed provide a way forward for this divided, suspicious world to find its way to an alternative and holy vision of what it means to be community. I've witnessed another kind of healing that takes place when churches worship around the table too. When the church eats together, those who are hungry become known. Those who hunger for community, yes, and those who hunger for God, yes, but also quite literally, I'm talking about physical hunger. Those who feel so strongly the brokenness of creation every single time their bellies hunger and they don't know where they'll eat again. I spent a year working at a dinner church in the suburbs of Boston that met every single Thursday night for worship over supper. Over time, we began to realize that one to two new families every week admitted to their own food insecurity and asked us for help. Usually they'd been a part of our community for several weeks before they would ever uh, tell us of their need. But also, we had a sense before then of their financial trouble. We'd noticed that they were always the first to request leftover soup and bread. Their kids usually were filling their plates a little bit higher than the rest. And we noticed that they came early to help set up in lieu of bringing their own potluck dish. It took several weeks of building trust before they could ask for financial help from the pastoral team. Most of them also attended another church on Sunday mornings, but the pastor that they entrusted with insight into their vulnerability was the pastor who fed them week after week. 
One week, the lead pastor remarked on the high proportion of families in our church who were struggling. I guess dinner church attracts the hungry, he said. And I think he's right, but I also think the story is a little bit more complicated than that. Yes, if we set a table and offer a feast as the central point of our worship, hungry people will come. But also, these same hungry folks are sitting with us in our pews every single week. These same hungry folks are in churches all around the world. They're listening to liturgies about the bread of life who leads us to hunger no more, and yet their belly is still rumbling. That bread of life is known quite literally around the table. And when we organize our worship around the belief that we were created to eat and that we were created to ensure that everyone eats, we meet the bread of life in a space that ensures we truly will hunger no more. Every church that I've studied holds in common a firm belief that Christian worship at the Eucharistic table is so much more than a taste of bread and wine. It's communion with God and with one another. It's a remembering of the harmonious symphony of creation, of resting in the mutual reliance of humans and animals and soil. Theologian Claudio Carveles says that the Eucharistic table can hold the entire world around its borders and issue a call for justice and solidarity, salvation and liberation. Every time I sit with others to worship God through the communion formed around the table, I'm overcome by the love of a God that created us to eat as our primary means of engaging with the world. I'm overwhelmed by a creation that was designed as a sacrament of communion with God. I heard that a few weeks ago, Chris preached on the churches in Acts who gathered together in their homes, breaking bread as their primary mode of worship. Every time I sit and eat with a new church community, I'm increasingly convinced that Christ was deeply serious when he commanded that we eat together. At the table, we catch a glimpse for the briefest of moments of creation as it was meant to be. So as you feast together this afternoon, and as you feast together every meal going forward, remember this bread and this wine. Remember Christ's body and blood, the death that brings the world back to life. Remember the interconnectedness of all of creation. Remember God's desire for this beloved world to flourish all together. And remember that soon the triune God will restore creation once again, and there will be no more death, and there will be no more mourning. In the closing scenes of Revelation, the garden reappears. But only one tree stands at the center, the tree of life, a tree whose leaves can heal nations and that bears its fruit all year round. The curse that was brought on by the Adam's fateful bite is reversed and interdependence is once again restored. The Adam and all of creation dwell and delight together, feasting forever in the presence of God. Amen.